But now everybody knows the war on real drugs was bad enough. It didn't work. What about a war on pretend drugs? I'm not kidding. Bert Cohen here. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. The war on drugs. Not only is it a failure, there's injustice and the hypocrisy is really astounding. And it's affected all of us for a longer time than we're largely aware. In a culture which has forever literally depended on the inclusion of the drug alcohol as an essential lubricant in both its social and legislative functioning, there's always been something fishy about the war on drugs. The evidence is overwhelming and inarguable that alcohol is both addictive and is a killer. In creating many of America's laws, going back to the earliest days, reluctant legislators were often, often plied with alcohol to get their needed support. Some very powerful players in the UK and the US have gained their hierarchical status through the sales of this often deadly drug. Great fortunes have been made in the leading Western cultures of Great Britain and the U.S., marketing and delivering not only alcohol, but also opium. Yes, opium, the basis of often deadly and addictive drugs such as heroin. We like to paint the illicit drug market as underground, of a different culture that lives only in the shadows. However, the truth is, in the Boston area, for example, the Forbes Mansion, now called the Forbes House Mansion a Museum, was built in 1833 with profits from the China opium trade. The Forbes were among many Boston Brahmin families whose wealth can be traced to this trade. They were the Perkins brothers who shifted their shipping empire from the slave trade to the opium trade to China in the early 1800s. Their profits helped establish the Perkins School for the Blind, Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Boston Athenaeum, as well as mills and railroads that launched the country's Industrial Revolution. War on drugs, indeed. It seems clear that which drugs were sold by which people makes all the difference and created tremendous injustice and hypocrisy continuing to this day. A highly educational light can be shed on the motives and harm created by the ongoing war on actual non-approved drugs through our discussion on uh, keeping democracy alive today. The topic is the Reagan-era war on so-called analogy drugs. What? Our guest today is Jordan S. Rubin. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, his new book is uh, on this very little-known topic, analogy drugs, is called Bizarro, the Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. <laughs> if you're like me, which you are probably not, the word Bizarro reminds you of a character by that name in Superman comics. That's intentional. Jordan Rubin is a journalist and former prosecutor for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, where he was assigned to the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor. He writes MSNBC's Deadline legal blog and was previously a legal reporter for Bloomberg. In this book, he exposes a little-known, still-raging battle in the war on drugs 
in which the feds bring charges for selling drugs that people don't even know are illegal. And are they even drugs? It's a, it's a secret synthetic drug war. Yes, you heard that right. It's nuts. Truly bizarre. And a look at what this crackdown on things that aren't even drugs reveals offers us a new understanding and perhaps a tool to lead to an end to the insane injustice of this useless and harmful war. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, pulling any uh, punches here, just, just in case you didn't know how I feel. There you go. How did, uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. How did you come up with the title for this book? It really is a stranger-than-fiction story that hasn't been told before. How did, how did how'd you come up with the title, and how did you get your hands on the story? Sure. So the title, I have to admit, I, I borrowed from within the story itself. So Bizarro was one of the products that the two main subjects of the book, huh. Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki, were selling through their Spice K2 synthetic cannabinoid distribution company. And now you talk about Superman the impetus for them naming it Bizarro actually was inspired by the Bizarro character from the Superman comics because Burton, when he would go to the library with his grandmother in Alabama when he was a child, was enthralled by the Superman anthology that featured that anti-hero Bizarro. And so it was from them that I essentially borrowed the phrase. And of course, it doubles as a Kafka-esque description description of their legal saga that's still ongoing oh interesting well how did you this this story hasn't been told before how did you come up with it how did you find it how'd you get your hands on it sure so back in in 2018 when i was working for bloomberg and focusing mainly on the supreme court there was a lawyer, one of the lawyers for Burton Ritchie, he reached out to me after an article that I wrote, not having to do with drugs, but having to do with vagueness in the law. He thought because this story, the story that would become Bizarro, also dealt with vagueness in the law that I might be interested in it. And he told me this story about innocent people being in prison and this law where you can't even tell what's illegal. And at first glance, I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Anyone who would get that description offhand might be skeptical of it, but as I dug into the case, I realized that not only was that description accurate, but it was really wilder than any story that I could have even dreamed up. But it's true. Uh, the truth is often stranger than fiction. Too many examples of that already. And all right, nobody doesn't know who Ronald Reagan was. Everybody knows. But I bet no one listening has ever heard of the Reagan Era Analogy Act. What was or is that? Is it still on the books? Sure. So it's still on the books, uh, the Analog Act for short. It was passed in 1986. Now, people who were alive or have studied in that era, you might remember when crack cocaine was all of the rage of the, the drug war then in the mid-80s. And so there was this law that was passed in 1986, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which, among other things, passed the infamous crack to powder disparity, which right. caused all sorts of issues within the system that we're still dealing with today. Now, what people don't know is at the same time in that massive omnibus bill, one of the parts of it that passed was this analog act, because the issue that law enforcement was 
trying to solve anyway from its view at the time was the fact that, okay, the way you know that drugs like crack are illegal is because you test it when you get it from someone on the street. It goes to the lab. They do their little laboratory thing, and it spits out the report saying, lo and behold, it's whatever the scientific name is for crack, you know, cocaine, hydrochloride, etc. And so the problem, again, in law enforcement's view was that wily underground chemists and dealers would look at the lists of what was controlled and say, well, hmm, if I tweak this molecule here or there, I can still sell stuff to people that gets them high. I'm not selling anything illegal. Everybody's having a good time. And there you go. We're all good. Now, of course, you see where this is going from law enforcement's view. That's not all good because you're selling stuff that's getting people high. You're selling something that colloquially anyway, from law enforcement's view, will be seen as a drug, even if it's not specifically listed. And so that, in short, is the problem that led to the solution of the Analog Act, which is still on the books today. Mm, solution. Analog Act. And uh, it, it's interesting. It can be spelled either way with the UE at the end or not. And apparently this has the UE at the end. That's a little bit of the confusion. But t tell us, please, about the highly questionable propriety and implementation of the Analog Act. Sure. So really from the start, it was kind of screwy because... Really, the the bottom line language to take away from the law is its substantial similarity standard. And so as I laid out the problem, OK, law enforcement wants to make illegal things that aren't specifically listed as drugs. So how do you do that? Well, the phrase that they came up with is to say, OK, if you're selling a drug that's substantially similar, mm. that's the key phrase mm. to a drug that's already been listed as illegal, you're on the hook as if you were selling that already illegal drug, such as cocaine, cannabis, heroin, anything that's already been listed. Now, even though, as I describe in Bizarro, the Justice Department, which was pushing Congress to pass the law, said that this was a scientific test, the reality is, as even the DEA scientists have been forced to admit on the stand later on, it's not a scientific test. It's a legal invention. It doesn't have scientific meaning. And so the problem is, if it doesn't have a scientific meaning, then it's going to lead to disagreements within the scientific community. And as I've shown in the book and tried to expose, even within the DEA itself, mm. they can't agree on what drug is substantially similar to an already scheduled drug. And so that is really the heart of the vagueness of this law, which just has led to innumerable problems. Absolutely bizarro. Uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. And having been a legislator myself, words are important in a law. And in preparing for this discussion, I was reminded of a current case, an FDA approved drug that's been used without problems for 20 years. Mm. Uh, Mifepristone, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I haven't used it. Yeah, Mifepristone. Mifepristone, thank you. The drug was banned, not by any scientific or medical concern. It was the judicial system which trumped science, which to me is just like, what? How can the judicial system trump science? This drug spice or whatever it was called, was never proven to be harmful. Well, it just looked like real cannabis. 
uh, and it's determined by law to be, quote, substantially similar. If there's no scientific reality to it, how the heck is that phrase determined, substantially similar? Well, so the way it's determined is not by prosecutors, obviously, because prosecutors generally aren't scientists, at least they're not acting as them in court. And so the way that this works in reality is that the prosecutors don't go forward unless they know going into a trial, they're going to be backed by DEA expert testimony. And so they know before they charge someone that their DEA experts will go forward and say, yes, you know, drug XYZ, nine or whatever the made up chemical name is, is substantially similar to cocaine, just to take a, a made up example. And so and that kind of makes sense, right? If you're going to have this kind of regime, it makes sense that you have this at least purportedly scientific backing to it. And so then what happens is the defense has their expert and they disagree with that. And that in itself isn't unique to the law where you'll have different expert witnesses disagreeing about whether some matter is this or that. And again, that's not unusual, but what's unique is doing it in this context of a drug that someone's selling it just can't know for sure whether or not it's illegal. And it's the jury that's making that ultimate determination based on that dueling expert testimony, whether this drug that you've been selling all along either was illegal all along or was not. And that's really remarkable. I think that at the end, it's these lay people on a jury who don't have the scientific expertise who are effectively making this determination in the end, whether you've been breaking the law all along and are maybe going to jail for the rest of your life, to prison for the rest of your life, right. I should say, yeah. or are just not breaking the law at all. You're, you're perfectly fine. Wow. The oh my goodness, the, the power that's given to a jury is always, you know, just amazing, really. And, and, and in this case, to, to, to have to decide the meaning of the term substantially similar, as you say, can affect someone's entire rest of their life. And it's just, on, frankly, on their interpretation. And, you know, we've seen uh, juries make errors before, that's for sure. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about something that really does affect democracy and the rule of law altogether. Our guest today is Jordan Rubin, who's got a new book out called Bizarro, The Surreal Sar Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins it captured. We'll have to talk about the Florida Kingpins uh, fairly soon. What? Was there not a good intention, at least in the context of the war on drugs, in the concern that underground chemists were making new compounds which were not yet illegal but still got users high? That they were just, you know, it was a cat and mouse game, just the, 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 the underground chemists keeping one step ahead of the law. And this is a way to, to catch up with that and that that was a good intention, at least within the context of the war on drugs? Yes, I, I was waiting for how that question would end because uh, I was going to add that caveat if you didn't. I think, yes, within the context of the right. war on drugs, right. sure. And, and again, this, but, but again, though, I think it's important because that's what's underlying this whole story is 
you know, I think everybody has some general understanding of the war on drugs and they have their opinions about it one way or the other. And I think this adds just another layer to it that shows just how much discretion there can be. And at the end of the day, really what the law has been used for is to punish people, not necessarily to uphold the law for its own sake, because when the law is this vague, ultimately, what is enforcing the law mean? It means enforcing the Mm. discretion of the person who wields that law, right? So again, yes, it's not, this wasn't, the law itself wasn't part of an evil plan, right? Again, going back to our caveat that the war on drugs itself is, is not that, but yes, sure. But you know, uh, where the, uh, you know, the, what's the phrase of the, the road to hell being paved with right. good intentions, right? right? And so, sure, look, it's all, all other things being equal. You can understand the problem just on a basic level. You want things to be illegal. It's really hard to do. Well, what do you do? You make, theoretically, everything illegal, and then you're fine, right? But, to, but, but, but really, that's not overstating what the law is. It sounds ridiculous, but that is what the law does. It outlawed, in theory, an infinite number of substances. Anything that a prosecutor backed by DEA evidence can convince a jury is substantially similar to something else. Now, of course, you're limited by the power of argument and the power of persuasion, but going back to what we were talking about with juries sometimes getting it wrong, you could be forgiven if you're a juror. You walk into this trial, you see a prosecutor standing up on behalf of the United States of America, Mm -hmm. backed by a fancy chemist. You say, well, gee, it looks like these people were doing bad things anyway, and you have all this scientific mumbo-jumbo that's backing it. I don't really understand it. But yeah, it looks looks good enough, right? Let's go. So in that context, there you have it. Well, The book Bizarro introduces the reader to two specific characters. I guess these guys are the (coughs) Florida kingpins, as it were, Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki. First, how did they meet? And second, what steps did they take to make sure their new enterprise played by the rules? Sure. So this story, just to situate it, it originates down in the Pensacola, Florida area, the Panhandle, for people who are familiar with that region of Florida. We're not talking about Miami. We're talking about really something closer to to Alabama. And so, yes, they were in the Boy Scouts at the same time in, Hmm. in different troops. Really, I think the memorable aspect of it for the purposes of this story is when they were both teenagers in the early nineties, they crossed paths in narcotics anonymous of all places. Uh, They were both there at different points in their lives for different reasons. Burton after an arrest. And so it was court ordered uh, Ben after he was caught drunk at school and was essentially forced into meetings there. And so they weren't best friends, but they stayed in touch over the years. And Burton, really was this serial entrepreneur figure getting involved into any industry that you can think of. And one of the things that he did was he opened up uh, a chain of head shops. And this was despite being by his own admission, an addict. And so Mm. there's sort of a tension there to start in his 
human story, arguably. Uh, he asked his sponsor if he could do it. His sponsor said, sure, if it didn't want to make him want to use, and it didn't, at least according to Burton. And he's been clean uh, since his initial teenage arrest and going into recovery. But nonetheless, one of the industries that he found himself in was this chain of head shops down in Pensacola called the Psychedelic Shack. And so how they got into this business, to fast forward, this stuff called Spice was getting really popular towards the late 2000s and into the early 2010s. And it was this stuff that was otherwise known as fake weed or synthetic marijuana. And it was sold in all these catchy packets with names like Bizarro and other catchy names like that. And you could get them at gas stations, head shops yeah. over the internet. And so Burton being the wily entrepreneur that he is. And I should say the reason that he started selling it at the psychedelic shack was again, Pensacola important to remember. This is a military area. Pensacola has all of these military personnel. And so they went into his head shop, the Burton's head shop, and they were asking for spice because it wasn't strictly illegal. And so they could still smoke it and pass drug tests again, just to, and that's a whole nother rabbit hole that we could go down as far as the war on drugs in general and cannabis in particular being illegal at the time in more places than it is today leading to this behavior. But bracketing that for a second. So Burton starts selling spice at his head shops. It's flying off the shelves. And again, being the entrepreneur that he is, he thinks, well, I'm not resigned to merely making this profit that I can make by selling it at the retail level in my store. I want to start producing it myself. And so he starts Zincense along with Ben, where they're actually making spice themselves and distributing it to head shops around the country like Burton's. I, I have no idea even what the heck it is, quite frankly. Uh, I, and I, but I do remember there was, I mean, the whole, uh, the idea of prohibition back in the, in the early part of the 20th century and more recently with regard to the drug war is fear. Fear works really, really well. And I remember the term spice and K2 coming up on, on, on TV. Uh, uh, so, you know, that, that must have played a real part in it. And they were, as you said, they were, they were careful. What steps did they take to make sure their new enterprise played by the rules? Sure. And again, this is something that sounds made up that you wouldn't know was real unless you saw it yourself. It conflicts, to say the least, with a stereotypical drug enterprise. For starters, they registered as an LLC. So from there, that's not something yeah. that your neighborhood heroin dealer <laughs> is doing, right? True. Um, they pay taxes. Again, same thing. They lab tested their chemicals that they were putting in their product. And I'll say that again. At their own expense, they sent their chemicals to a lab to make sure that it wasn't on a list of already illegal chemicals. So they knew yeah. that the products that they were distributing were not strictly illegal. Again, going back to the Analog Act, you never know because theoretically anything could be illegal. Yeah. But at the very least, they were taking steps to ensure that they were by no means violating the Controlled Substance Act itself in terms of the listed chemicals that were on there. Absolutely amazing. The, the I mean, registering as an LLC, I seriously doubt any underground drug uh, enterprise ever, 
<laughs> yeah, at at least not for what you're selling. You know, there might be a shell company right. involved or something like True. that. But good point. We see the point. And you obviously have a legal background, so you you thought of that. <laughs> what when when they raised concerns with a drug enforcement agency agent in Pensacola, part of the world I've never been in, nor do I ever want to go. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what did he tell Let you? Let me say the beaches there are beautiful. I have to say I learned through reporting this book out. So I, I would recommend oh, Okay, it. okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so when they raised concerns with an agent, what did that agent tell them? They were concerned about it. They were qu- questioning it. What, what, why did they do that? And what did the agent tell them? Sure. And so just to situate this briefly, there was this nationwide raid in 2012 where the DEA took down all of these head shops and facilities around the country. They called it Operation Logjam. It was the first operation of its kind. And so just to speed up a bit, so we're talking in Pensacola, what Burton did was he set up a manufacturing facility out in Las Vegas because the spice chemical down in Pensacola, it was taking too long to dry Uh. in that climate there. So out in the desert Uh. there, it could dry more quickly. And again, they registered as an out-of-state corporation in Nevada. You can see this yourself if you look up ZenSense and you can find it there still. So it wasn't in Pensacola where they got raided in this nationwide raid where they were there for anyone to find. Uh, But the Las Vegas warehouse through another story that would take an hour to explain wound up getting onto law enforcement's radar there and so after the vegas warehouse is raided burton he contacts a cop he knows Uh down in pensacola who by the way would regularly sign out bongs from burton's head shop to use in dare presentations just to show kind of the open level at which he was dealing with the law there uh, through his head shops and so Mm. Burton gets in touch with Special Agent Claude Cozy and says, hey, and there's a phone call of this, which I have a recording of, which I transcribed in the book, which has not been published before that recording, which sheds further light on some of these legal proceedings. Mm. So they talk on the phone that night and Burton lays out essentially what I've laid out to you, Bert, in terms of the steps that they took to comply with the law. And Burton invites the agent, Claude Cozy, to his facility. He wants him to come and check it out. And he tells him, if we're breaking the law, we'll shut down right now. And so Cozy comes the next morning. Burton gives him a tour of the facility. Uh, And again, this isn't a one-sided manner of proof that I'm using to go off of this. I've spoken to Agent Cozy. I've reviewed his police reports. And so anything that I'm saying now is not my invention or a function of Burton's mind. This is is stuff that I know that's been corroborated or Mm -hmm. else I wouldn't have felt comfortable writing about it because it would just sound made up. But so... Cozy is there the next morning after Operation Logjam. He's touring the ZenSense facility in Pensacola. He's seeing all of the the factory workers because they have this huge operation that's that's running there like anything else that would be making shoes or toilet plungers or whatever else it could be. It just happened to be these synthetic drugs that may or may not have been uh, legal. And so Cozy tours. He gets samples from Burton, including Bizarro. And... Burton says to Cozy, point blank, if we're breaking the law, we'll shut down right now. And 
Cozy doesn't and Cozy doesn't arrest them on the spot at the very least. And he takes the samples with him and he says, look, if it all checks out, you're good to go. I'm sure it will be. And so the bottom line is he takes the drugs and everyone goes on with their day. Uh, And so, again, the drugs that he tested, they weren't scheduled substances Mm -hmm. like Burton said. And so we all knew that going into it because they were testing their own products at their own private lab and not their own lab, but through a separately registered private lab. Oh. And so the the stuff was what Burton told cozy. It was a non-scheduled substance. And yet, yet they were really careful. They wanted to play by the rules clearly, and yet they ended up in federal prison convicted as drug kingpins they were indicted years later get in three states taken to trial three times tell us that story please that's incredible Sure. And so I think it's important to note when they were arrested, because remember, this raid is back in 2012. They're not arrested then. They leave the business, which was its own complicated side story and how they sold the business and got rid of it through a series of actual corporate contracts that, again, you wouldn't see cocaine dealers engaged in. There's actual contracts that you can look at that they use for selling their business. So the bottom line is they get out of the synthetic drug industry, at least by the end of the year, by 2013, they're out for good. They move on really to new lives in film and entertainment. They actually start a film production company and started working with celebrities like Kevin Pollack. They produced his documentary, Misery Loves Comedy. Really, again, this goes back to, I think, Burton being this serial entrepreneur. This was the next thing that he got into. And Ben, on his own, he co-founded this festival called Pensacon as sort of the area's answer to the Comic-Con festival, which still continues to this day. And so they both got into these really new lives, having nothing to do with drugs. And lo and behold, though, in 2015, three years later, mm-hmm. they're arrested for the activity from back in 2012. Okay. Again, for those who may have just tuned in, you're hearing a bizarro story. The book is called Bizarro. Our guest today is its author, Jordan Rubin. Bizarro, the surreal saga of America's secret war on synthetic drugs and the Florida kingpins it captured. So take us back to 2015. They, they were, it must have been an incredible surprise after they had gotten out of the business, sold the business, and were doing something completely different. How did that evolve into three separate trials and and you know taken to three states uh three separate times and what 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 the heck (laughs) what the heck indeed so they're indicted in three states and now if you heard any of the story to this point you might think you can guess at least one of them as being florida right Uh, but you would be wrong because nothing Mm. makes sense in this story the three states are nevada where they had the warehouse that was raided in logjam alabama where the call center of their business moved to after one of their products was banned on the state level and this was more so after they got out of the business and then the third was in virginia which was one of the states where their product shipped to and under that theory they could have been prosecuted in nearly 50 states Uh, it was really just a matter of where the government 
sort of wanted to aim its scope at them. And so those were the three states, and it started off in Virginia. So they didn't, these offenses for which they were charged, these questionable offenses, were they offenses? I don't know. They Did they even happen? They didn't happen in those states? And, and they hadn't, whatever alleged offenses happened a long time earlier because they were out of the business. Am I getting there right? <laughs> right. So certainly it was within the statute of limitations. Uh, there was right, nothing right. illegal about the fact of bringing charges. You can query whether there's a moral component to yeah, that. If yeah. someone comes to the law and says, hey, I'll get out of the business if you tell me to, and then that doesn't happen, and then you're arrested nonetheless. In terms of the offenses themselves, one of the things that's interesting about this story is that there's really no question about what happened. You know, sometimes a trial, a pivotal question might be, did this person pull the trigger? Is it this person's DNA on the weapon? Something like that. But here, really, there's no question that they were selling this stuff. They don't deny it. They don't deny they are making money from it, right? Mm -hmm. The question is, is this stuff substantially similar to a controlled substance and therefore illegal beyond a reasonable doubt under the Analog Act? Or is it like anything else, like you're selling someone a Twinkie or a pencil or something like that? And really, again, sounds crazy, but yes. that's the bottom line of the charges here. And I have to say, the jury wrestled with this question uh, in most, if not all, of the trials, because starting with the trial in Virginia, their first trial of three, at least to date, they're still on appeal, and we don't know how this case is going to end yet, but their first trial in Virginia, it ended with a hung jury specifically uh -huh. on the question of substantially similar. The jury uh -huh. deliberations are secret, but we know that they wrote this in a note to the judge, which is public information. They essentially said, we cannot determine the substantial similarity question. Now, that's just a hung jury. That's not an acquittal. So it doesn't get them off the hook. They're right back where they started. And the government doesn't hesitate. They say, we want to go forward with another trial. Again, at this second trial, this second jury starts to wobble again on this substantial similarity question. Good. But again, the judge gives them this instruction, which is, not completely unique, although sort of controversial. It's called an Allen charge, where you basically give the jury a nudge to reach a decision one way or the other. And the jury, after that instruction, reached that decision and agreed to convict them. And they were each sentenced to about three decades apiece. Jeez. At, at, at their expense, I must say. I mean, lawyers don't come cheap, as you know. Uh, <laughs> Well, sure. There were multiple lawyers in multiple states that were involved uh, in these cases. So it's different lawyers, depending on which trials uh, you're talking about here. But but look, we haven't even gotten into what I would argue is the most bizarre part of this story, which is the reason why that first set of convictions was overturned. And that's because going back to this discussion we were having to your question, Bert, of how does the government decide right. what substance to deem substantially similar to another, or at least to allege that, to put that question to a jury, it's that they have their scientists in the DEA figure it out. However, something I found in this story 
is again that the DEA itself cannot agree within itself on this question. And so that on its own is worth investigating. Where it gets really bad is that there was this chemist who was a dissenter. He disagreed with how his colleagues were going about these analog substantial similarity determinations, Uh but they were effectively suppressing that information from coming out. Because look, if you're a defendant and you're charged in one of these wacky cases and you hear that a DEA chemist agrees with you that you're not breaking the law, that's a golden ticket, right? Yes. And the government recognized that too. (laughs) And they did everything they can everything they could, I should say, because now we're speaking the past tense, I've uncovered this information. They did everything they could to try and stop it from coming out, except it did. And then once that information did come out, now this chemist, his name is Arthur Barrier. Again, he was working for the DEA at the time that the Virginia trials against Burton and Ben were going forward. They wanted to put Barrier on the stand, obviously. But again, this gets into really technical legal reasoning here. The judge blocked them from putting him on the stand. So they were with they were convicted without the benefit of this evidence that a DEA chemist thought they were not breaking the law. Now, (laughs) you can't see my judge dropping. Go ahead. Oh, well, 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 leave it right there. Don't 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 uh, reattach your jaw yet, because they get their convictions overturned in Virginia okay. based on the judge being incorrect from keeping this DEA chemist off the stand. Makes yeah. sense so far, right? Sure. Well, OK, that's just Virginia. Remember, these guys are charged in three different states. That doesn't do anything to these indictments in the other states. So for their third trial, their most recent one to date, They're tried again in Nevada. This is in 2019. They get to put Barrier on the stand. Uh But, 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 but. What happened to Arthur Barrier between Burton and Ben's Virginia convictions in 2017 and their trial in Nevada in 2019? He was arrested. And when I say he, I'm talking about the chemist. The DEA chemist, Arthur Barrier, was arrested. Uh (laughs) I'm sorry, I laughed. What? What? Huh? Explain that, please. (laughs) Sure. So this is after Barrier testified for in on behalf of other defendants, not Burton and Ben, Uh which, of course, led to an acquittal on analog charges. Sure. Months after that happened in 2017, after Burton and Ben's convictions, he was arrested in a sting operation in northern Virginia that was targeting men who were trying to meet underage girls online for sex. Okay. Yes. And so you see. So so obviously his life is effectively done in many important ways. But for the purposes of this story, if you're Burton and Ben, you're done too, because this star witness that you had, this golden ticket who would have blown the case out of the water is now tainted. So, okay. Now we're in 2019. They put Arthur barrier on the stand in Nevada. Great. He, he says his opinion. And on paper, if what he's saying is true, that's an automatic acquittal 
they're not breaking the law. But, but what the government gets to put out in front of the jury is, oh, and by the way, mm-hmm. you're a convicted felon now, right? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. What's a jury supposed to do who's mm-hmm. already taking in all of this complicated information? You're looking at these guys. Well, they're sitting over at that table, so they probably did something kind of weird, even if it wasn't maybe totally illegal. And there you go. <laughs> they're convicted. Oh, my goodness. What a bizarre story. Oh, whoa. I cannot imagine having the guy who's going to save your butt get charged with doing what he got charged with. Whoa. Yeah, that would (laughs) rather hurt his credibility quite substantially. Oh, man, I can't imagine what that felt. I have to ask, I wonder how often, I mean, here was the the Drug Enforcement Agency uh, covered up and tried to squash the internal uh, dissent. Uh, And I wonder how often that happens. That would say a lot. I mean, this war on drugs has gone on for decade after decade, and an awful lot of people are still, you know, sitting behind bars. Uh, I wonder how often the DEA gets in and, you know, twists things around a little bit. Any sense of that? Well, the scary thing is there's no way to know, right? Right. You can't prove a negative. You can't know what you don't know. What I would say, though, is just this story frightened me in a lot of ways because, again, I've obviously put a lot of time into it to find out what I needed to find out to be able to even explain this complicated story. Again, in terms of his dissent coming out in the first place, Arthur Barrier, I can't claim the credit for that in the first instance. That was a defense lawyer for a, a hearing down in Florida who somehow got wind of it. I don't know how to this day. I say that just to say we only know about this particular instance of this cover-up due to Herculean efforts by mm several actors within the system, Mm. which is not always how these things go and vast resources put into it. And a judge who in that hearing that wound up effectively uncovering barriers, dissent, actually pressing the government and putting it to its proof, which is not something that you see happening every day. And so that's why I say that it's a scary story, because even if it's not the sort of apparent misconduct of the type that we're talking about here, if you dig deep enough into any story, you're going to at least find more than what you see at the surface. And it really becomes, and and I say this as a journalist, it, it scares me not to have enough time to look into every story that I need to tell the public about because it's not possible. Right. right. And so All I can say is that it's something to keep in mind. You want to go to the primary sources when you can. And even then, it it takes more digging than a lot of us have the time to do. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I think about uh, people like courtroom dramas, movies, all kinds of movies about courtroom dramas. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of them. And it is interesting stuff. I mean, there's a reason why the the theater of it uh, is 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 interesting. And here we're talking about a real case that's just off the wall, and it's called Bizarro: The Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. Uh, and our guest is its author Jordan Rubin. You put in a lot. How long did it take you to write this? this I mean, you must have worn a lot of shoes <laughs> checking this out. 
Yeah, so I first heard of the story in 2018, which looking back, well, that's only about five years ago. It it actually doesn't sound that long looking back, but it's I would say that it it has consumed me since then and wrote a few articles about it and then realized that it just needed to get a wider distribution and be able to tell the story at a deeper level. And so really during the COVID era, the beginning of it is really spent every second that I had writing this. Well, interesting. There's, there's a couple of characters. What's so strange about the Richie case itself? Sure. So it's really a question of how much time we have. I think you can look at it as an indictment of the entire system from cover to cover. I think, again, going back to this question about keeping the dissenting DEA chemist Arthur Barrier on the stand, if you would just kind of sit with this counterfactual for a second of think, if the Virginia judge who kept Barrier off the stand back when Barrier was still working for the DEA before he got arrested, if he was allowed to testify, You could envision a world where they were then acquitted, and then who knows what happens with the rest of their cases. Maybe the government gets a little squeamish about going forward when you have this star DEA witness who can blow their case out of the water. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if that had happened, just really a matter of months timing from the time that they were convicted to the time that he was arrested, he being barrier you never know what could happen. We might not even be having this conversation. At least we'd be having a different conversation. It goes on and on. And aside from what you call the weirdness of the law itself, you say, the plot thickened when I looked into how the government has wielded the Analog Act. What do you mean by that? How have they wielded it? And, and, What do you mean by that? What I mean is when you go inside of the DEA, what I mean is if you were to just look at this law on the face of it, you see substantially similar. You say, okay, that's kind of vague, interesting enough to look into. It's interesting for a law professor to contemplate and it's worth writing about, right? Without having any more facts. But really I think where the rubber hits the road is how the DEA goes about forming its substantial similarity determinations, how it goes about essentially deciding what's illegal and what's not. And this is without Congress being involved at all, without providing notice to people either, because when the DEA goes about making its determinations, and this is when everything's working right, this is without, this is when they're not suppressing any internal dissent or anything. When everything's working, uh, what might be termed the right way in this relative universe So they make this determination that some new chemical is an analog. They don't tell the public about that like they would when any other listed chemical is going on the list. The public even usually will get a warning before something is officially made illegal by a notice going out in the Federal Register. So you can essentially get your affairs in order and prepare for what's coming, which is a good thing because laws need to be clear in order for us to order our lives around them. You know that, Bert. And so... It's a simple proposition, but the Analog Act flips it on its head, where you have, again, 
everything's working right. There's nothing nefarious happening, at least within this caveat. They're not providing notice to people of what's illegal. And so it's fair to say that that's a problem. Where it gets even deeper, though, is if they're not telling people what's illegal when there's no internal dissent, they're not telling people that there is any dissent in terms of arriving at that conclusion. So you have a situation where if you're selling a substance that's not listed as scheduled, you can nonetheless be prosecuted for it without getting any direct notice about this substance or if the DEA had its way, any information that there was disagreement about that within the DEA itself, that it's the government essentially saying, although it would never put it this way, we're not sure if this thing that may or may not be illegal, depending upon what a jury thinks, we're not sure ourselves, us being kind of the coherent unit of the government and all its employees, but we're not going to tell you because, you know, this is kind of hard enough as it is for us to prove up these cases. And so that would be like even harder. So we're not going to do that. Wow. Absolutely bizarre. I, it's just the, the title of the drug, as you say, it's from a, 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 a synthetic, it's from a bogus thing, but it is it is bizarre. It really is bizarre. And, you know, the whole, I mean, we can't really get into the whole concept of the war on drugs, but, you know, I assume fentanyl, for example, is illegal. But frankly, I don't give a duck. It's bad stuff. You stay away from it. You learn about it. You stay the heck away from it. And, you know, alcohol ain't good either. There was a reason why it was prohibited a long time ago. It causes some very bad things, but it didn't work. The law messed it up. It was great for the crime world. And, I mean, cannabis was quite illegal everywhere for the first two decades of this century. And and as you say, widespread cannabis prohibition combined with the lucrative drug testing industry, mm-hmm, another aspect of it, which is, a, it's totally legal, I, uh, the drug testing industry. Anyway, widespread cannabis prohibition combined with the lucrative drug testing industry made spice the perfect product for its time. Tell us about that, please. Please say more. Sure. So let's go back to the late 2000s. And this is around the time of the the economic crash around that time. Right. And, and I'm and I'm focusing our attention on that event for for a reason that's related to this story. Yeah. So our uh, our protagonist or antagonist, depending on <laughs> what side of the, the V in these criminal cases you're sitting on, uh, Burton Ritchie, he had this chain of head shops in Pensacola, the psychedelic shack right. since the early 90s. He's the serial entrepreneur, as we said, so he's invested in real estate as well. Now, that was a problem in addition to him being in debt based on his business interests besides when the market crashed. And so he has these head shops and he needs something big to help turn things around or his head shop business is going to be in trouble. Lo and behold, you have this new seemingly legal drug spice Mm -hmm. that's starting to hit the market. And he knows about it because sailors from the nearby Naval base in Pensacola are coming in and asking him for it. And the reason they want it is because they can smoke it in place of cannabis uh-huh, sure. 
and still pass drug tests. Uh And then everyone can get on their way. Burton orders up a batch of this stuff and it starts flying off the shelves. And partly due to the success of that drug, he digs himself out of that hole and really doubles down, opens up another store in his chain where he can sell more of spice and bongs. And again, equipment products, I should say, used to pass drug tests. Those are some of the biggest sellers too. So he had you covered either way. If you were smoking spice you could buy that and not fail a drug test. If you were doing stuff that would make you pop on a drug test, he and every other smart head shop runner were selling the products that could help you pass drug tests too. Uh And so again, this was just a decade or 15 years or so ago. It's a totally different world when it comes to cannabis, which is much more legal now. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And you know, there's, there's this, uh, thing called capitalism, and one of the basic rules of capitalism is where this is demand, ha, huh, there's going to be a supply. Amazing how that works. You know, if you can deal, if unless they get with the demand, it ain't going to work. Um, and I, I wanted to ask too. You know, if people uh, don't, you know, haven't been involved in this stuff. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Again, people love uh, courtroom dramas, and this is just. Amazing. Well, first off, where are the two defendants now? Are they still in jail? They are. So after being convicted in Nevada in 2019, they were sentenced to 20 years each, which was the minimum Minimum. under this kingpin law. They could have put them away for life. That's where the kingpin from the title Uh comes from. They may Uh be kingpins. If they went on appeal, they may be just like you and me, non-kingpins who were just might as well have been selling thermometers or toothbrushes or anything else that isn't substantially similar to a scheduled drug. Right now they're sitting in Talladega, Alabama, the Uh federal prison there, maybe about four hours north or so from where they've lived much of their lives. And they're waiting on an appeal, which was argued about a year and a half ago, which by the court's normal schedule should have come already, uh, but we're waiting for it any day. It could be coming down as we're speaking. Oh, my I goodness. Oh, I cannot imagine. Well, if people, you know, again, are not involved in this at all, is there a legitimate concern, like for everybody, that politicians and judges and juries could in the future override scientific realities about an awful lot of things. And, and you know, I mean, how dangerous is this to our, our judicial system and democracy? Well, maybe not so much democracy, but, but uh, the rule, by, rule of law. It's more dangerous than, than we can even contemplate, because I think this law shows the danger in vesting this vast amount of power in people who are going to wield it unscrupulously. Now, it's one thing, again, and this is true even in any sort of drug case where a drug that is unquestionably illegal, there's still discretion that should be involved. We need to be Uh. able to entrust prosecutors. Again, this is with the caveat of if there is to be sort of a traditional prosecution type system and maybe that's not the case but if you're operating under that rubric you need to be able to trust the people who are enforcing these laws because often what you'll hear and i'm a former prosecutor there's this sense that you almost don't really have direct agency and that you're kind of just mechanically Uh 
enforcing the law, which is handed down by the legislature. Right. If you're in your experience, you know how the whole separation of powers works, right? It's the whole how a bill becomes a law thing. Uh, but I think we're going to need a new video when it comes to the Analog Act specifically, because it's turned the whole thing on its head. Uh, because Congress is barely involved, if at all, aside from when it passed this law in 1986, because it's just all the discretion, essentially, to the DEA, which, we, which Bizarro, I think, shows, has not acted honestly when it comes to this. There's just a very questions that I think still need to be answered, uh, ideally in a congressional forum uh, about some of the behavior of some of the DEA chemists who were involved in these cases. And again, going back to your question, it shows the danger of the vast power that we vest in people to enforce the law. Now, I mean, I don't think that that means you therefore blow up the whole enterprise. Right. There's people who are people who are skeptical of the drug war fall on a spectrum within that. There's the the feeling of there should be no one in prison for anything, no matter what it is. I don't happen to hold that view, but I think that this shows the danger of an unchecked uh -huh. enforcement mechanism when you're really pushing the law as far as you can because the analog act is so vague that you really can't be said to just be enforcing the law because no one knows what the law is. Wow. And that is not an overstatement when you have chemists within the DEA itself who cannot agree whether a particular substance is legal or not. So it really, really is a threat to democracy in a big way because, I mean, laws, people we elect are there to serve us, we the people. Uh, and if, if they don't have the laws, there, there's something that we fought against in the 1940s, uh, police state. And they make the laws and they do the enforcement. We don't want that. We don't want that. We really don't want that. Fascinating story. You couldn't make this stuff up. Absolutely incredible. Jordan Rubin, thank you so much for being with us today. The book is titled Bizarro, The Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. Thank you so much. And who is the publisher on that? University of California Press. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, good luck to the, uh, to the, well, I hope justice prevails. It hasn't yet. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. Really appreciate it.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.